Hello and welcome to the Chair's Corner from the Department of Medicine at the University of North Carolina. We have been discussing different kinds of therapy in the Chair's Corner, and today we're going to talk about something called immunotherapy, the different types of immunotherapy, how they work, and how well this form of therapy works. And we welcome today Dr. Jonathan Cerotti, the Elizabeth Thomas Professor of Medicine, Microbiology, and Immunology, who is in our Division of Hematology and Oncology. He also has a joint appointment in Microbiology and Immunology, and we welcome Dr. Cerotti today. Thank you, Dr. Falk. So what on earth is this word immunotherapy, and what does it mean? So when I'm going to discuss immunotherapy today, it'll be in relationship to patients with cancer. So there are different immunotherapies. I think a lot of individuals would know allergy shots as a form of immunotherapy. We're not going to discuss that. This is using your immune system to treat your tumor in a way that bypasses the need for chemotherapy or radiation therapy. Different than immunotherapy in which, for example, an infusion happens with a drug that would uh, be a commercial uh, antibody, for example, that would get rid of a group of cells for patients with autoimmune disease, Correct. which would be immunotherapy of one kind as well. Correct. This is a very specific kind of immunotherapy that works remarkably well in some kinds of cancer. Correct. So there are three forms of immunotherapy that have become um, quite interesting for treating patients with cancer. The one I'm going to mostly focus on is what's called adoptive cell therapy, which is a treatment where we take your immune cells, engineer them to recognize your tumor, grow them substantially in a lab, and then give them back to you, and then, then go and target your tumor and in most instances kill your tumor. Um, most forms of chemotherapy don't have the ability to distinguish just the tumor cells. Correct. So they, they kill normal and they kill tumor, and the difference is how fast you grow, and they hope that the tumor cells grow fast enough that they're the ones that are destroyed preferentially. These cells that we put back in, we engineer them with a antibody target that recognizes a specific protein that typically is only on either tumor cells or tumor cells plus other cells that aren't critical to the person. So we mostly, and in some instances specifically, target just tumor cells. Are the tumor cells that you're targeting specific to an individual patient, uh, or is it to a group of patients with the same kind of cancer? It's specific to a group of patients. So the one that we've um, pushed forward the most right now is a, a cell therapy for Hodgkin's lymphoma and certain types of T-cell lymphoma. So anybody with those diseases would be eligible for treatment as long as the tumor expresses a protein called CD30. And then we re-engineer their white cells, their T-cells, to recognize the CD30 on the tumor cells and kill the tumor cell. Other than for Hodgkin's and other T-cell lymphomas, what other kinds of patients would immunotherapy work for? So we've engineered through work in the immunology program at a scientific side um, T cells that will recognize other proteins that are present on other tumors. So we've opened up a clinical trial for the treatment of patients with multiple myeloma, uh, recognizing a protein called CD138 that's on myeloma cells. And we have a clinical trial for patients with 
acute leukemia recognizing a protein called CD19. So this is way more specific kinds of therapy than would otherwise be available. Correct. Correct. So the you know patients basically come into the infusion clinic. They get some chemotherapy medicine to make sure that the cells we give take. Um, it's not really designed to kill the tumor. Um, they get the infusion in the clinic. They go home a couple hours later, and we just follow them. Uh, they don't lose their hair. They don't get sick to their stomach. Um, they go back to work within a few days. It's much different than getting a course of chemotherapy. Let's walk through exactly what happens with a patient who's about to get this form of therapy. The patient comes initially, and you take their blood. Correct. And walk me through what happens once you have their blood. So we take their blood. The blood is uh, shipped in a courier van over to a facility that's a couple of miles away from the hospital where the blood cells are isolated. Those blood cells are then um, infected with a retrovirus that can't replicate itself. So it's like the HIV virus, but it's not able to grow. So you can't ever get problems from it, but it targets the protein that we're interested in targeting on the tumor cells. So we infect the person's white cells or T cells with this retrovirus. In the lab. In the lab. And then we grow in dishes and flasks those T cells from um, a few million to hundreds of millions of cells. Um, That takes about typically 10 to 14 days. We then test the cells to make sure that there's no problem with infectious entities within them and that they actually kill the tumor cells that we like and that they're viable. Once they test and are lot released as being um, able to perform all the things that they need to do, they're shipped back to the hospital and the person's brought to the clinic. Um, They're given the chemotherapy drugs over a couple of days. And then on the third or fourth day after the chemotherapy drugs, the cells are put right back into an IV line over about five minutes, and that's it. And that form of therapy and those that specific construct that you have developed is really unique to UNC. Correct. So if you want to get T-cell therapy for CD30 lymphoma, you have to come to UNC to get that. The CD138 target for myeloma will be one of two centers in the country targeting that protein and only one of a handful of centers targeting any protein on multiple myeloma cells. That's then a service that is unique and and absolutely wonderful. Correct. Correct. Once the patient gets their cells back, do they get ill? So you can get ill. Um, It's a different type of illness than you typically think of for chemotherapy or radiation therapy. So these cells uh, can basically find tumor cells. When they find tumor cells, they grow and expand substantially and produce the proteins that most of us are um, familiar with when you get influenza. So you oftentimes will get a similar process to influenza, but it can actually be a little bit more severe a sort than of a, influenza. A ramped up flu-like illness, but exactly. it's not It's not, not a virus. virus. It's, it's not the virus. It's, it's basically the proteins that the cells make, which I think in most instances is what you feel in, the, in influenza. So it's fevers, muscle aches, headaches, um, but then can lead to problems with blood pressure and breathing if not treated. And how long do those symptoms typically last for? They can last for typically seven to 10 days. There are therapies available now that target some of the uh, cytokine proteins that mediate the symptoms. And so we can, in most instances, 
treat patients to make sure that they don't get immensely ill. Uh, but most of the patients who develop this are in the hospital for about a week if they develop this. But I think what's also important is we've developed through a number of other faculty members in neurology, the intensive care unit, uh, emergency department. We've developed a lot of expertise around how to manage these patients uh, successfully. And so we have a you know, fairly robust approach to managing these folks that I think is critically important to allow them to get through this. I don't think you'd want to get this therapy in a small community hospital. We didn't have the uh, expertise available at UNC. When somebody starts immunotherapy, how often do they get it? Is it so, once? Is it twice? Is it every so, week? So the adoptive cell therapy that we give is typically given once. Occasionally, we've given a second treatment if the first treatment was successful, but not completely successful. Uh, but typically, it's no more than twice. Um, that differs from the other types of um, oncological immunotherapy where you get commercial antibody treatments typically every two to three weeks for sometimes up to a year. But for the adoptive cell therapy, it's usually given either once or twice. Of the th patients that you've treated with Hodgkin's lymphoma, who have really failed almost everything else. That's how they get to you. How well have those patients done? So it was a typical type of clinical trial mandated by the FDA. So we started at a low dose to make sure it was safe. Uh, once we got to the effective dose with the effective chemotherapy drugs to make sure that the cells took, we've treated 10 individuals, eight of whom have gone into a complete remission. And these individuals averaged eight prior therapies before we treated them. So this was a group of patients that really had exhausted all other forms of treatment. Yeah. And of the eight that have gone into complete remission, roughly five of the eight now are still in remission with a median evaluation of about nine months after treatment. Now, that's fantastic because otherwise, if everything else has failed, this is a last resort. Correct. And that sort of success rate is, is remarkable in so many ways. Some patients are not candidates for this kind of adoptive immunotherapy. Who are they? So if you don't have a tumor that we have a easily recognizable target for the T-cells, you wouldn't be a candidate for this. And then, unfortunately, we've not had as much success in the laboratory treating the predominant cancers that patients get, which are lung cancer, breast cancer, colon cancer, prostate cancer. Those diseases have been a little bit harder to treat than blood or bone marrow-based diseases. And so right now, there's not an effective adoptive cell therapy using the approach we have for those solid tumors. It works in some patients with myeloma. Correct. Who are those individuals? So right now, we think that anybody with persistent or refractory multiple myeloma would be a candidate for this. Once you get to the effective dose, um, the data from the National Cancer Institute and our preclinical data would suggest that maybe half of those patients who, again, have failed other prior therapies, almost always including stem cell transplant, uh, would respond to this treatment. And the hope, again, would, that they would have a long-term remission. Correct. And by remission, you mean no evidence of disease that can be detected clinically or radiographically or by any number of other blood tests. Correct. Uh, we've not done this for that long, so the shortest have been a few months, and again, the median or the average is about nine months or three quarters of a year. For the leukemia therapy, you know, there's clearly data from individual centers that started treating patients before us that about 40 to 50 percent of patients, again, with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, non-responsive to anything, uh, are disease-free and alive three years after treatment.
because this therapy is relatively new, the approach right now is to treat patients who've been refractory to other forms of therapy. But one could imagine, because of the specificity of the of the drug, that in the future, one would want to use this earlier in the course of disease. How early can you imagine that uh, one could use this form of therapy or other conventional chemotherapeutic approaches less toxic? Yeah, so I think that you could envision a future not that far away where you might use this therapy initially as a way, especially in a younger individual with Hodgkin's lymphoma. The majority of patients between 15 and 30 with Hodgkin's lymphoma often have more complications from the treatment than they do from the disease. Especially long-term, Correct. long-term complications of, of the therapy. Correct. Uh, right. Um, so you could envision that if you could treat those individuals up front without ever exposing them to chemotherapy, you might be able to avert all of those complications of lung and heart and second cancers. Right now, I think most places are looking at this form of therapy as a way to circumvent the need for autologous or allogeneic stem cell transplantation, which is effective but has a number of complications and side effects and clearly can cause unfortunate death in patients. This is probably safer than that form of therapy and if it's shown to be as effective, and there are studies doing that now, might be a uh, process that would replace transplant at least for patients with leukemia and B-cell lymphoma. What does the future then look like 10 years from now in your mind? Realistically, what kinds of patients would you be treating and would you be able to end up, do you think, going into the cancers that you named that currently the approach doesn't work for? Colon cancer, breast cancer, lung cancer. So we're going to start trials probably in 2020 in patients with ovarian cancer to try to see if we can uh, utilize new targets and potentially other approaches to make those cells work better. I think immunotherapy is here to stay. I think our type of adoptive cell therapy uh, hopefully can be utilized much more widely if we can figure out how to treat solid tumors. And then potentially because our therapy has the ability to work forever, if it does, you can envision a time where that's the only treatment that you had. Wouldn't that be wonderful? That would be. There's another form of what could be called immunotherapy, which are a group of drugs called checkpoint inhibitors. What are those? So checkpoint inhibitors are antibody treatments that were initially evaluated in academic centers. So the two individuals this past year who won the Nobel Prize in medicine won them for the identification of CTLA-4. That was Jim Allison and Takachu Hanju won it for the identification of PD-1. These are proteins that block immune cells from working. Companies developed antibodies that target those proteins, and they can rejuvenate the immune response to cancer. What's been pretty clear to us over the last decade is that a considerable number of individuals generate their own immune response to their own tumor that over time loses steam, and eventually the tumor wins out. And these checkpoint inhibitor antibodies by blocking these checkpoint proteins that are important in the ability of the immune cells to lose steam, rejuvenate that immune response and allow you to use your natural immunity to reject the tumor. When one thinks about prevention of tumors in general, all of our immune system is constantly surveying our bodies to avoid or get rid of possible tumor cells. 
so yeah, so I think that most of us now believe that you probably have had a tumor for a very long period of time in a very microscopic element that was being successfully controlled by the immune response until it wasn't, and that's when it becomes obvious to you. But these probably are present for years uh, under some successful immune control before they're not. And they're not because the immune system exhausts itself over time. And these checkpoint inhibitors basically put a break on that exhaustion and allow the cells to work again. The intriguing concept is to have your own immune system really uh, keep all sorts of diseases in check. And when that process dissipates, when the immune system you use the word exhausted or otherwise stops working, uh, tumors and other kinds of diseases become apparent. Correct. Correct. Checkpoint inhibitor therapy, which is targeting PD-1, PD-L1, CTLA-4, there are six antibodies now commercially. So six different drugs that are available now, all that come out under the guide of checkpoint inhibitor Correct. drugs. Correct. They work about 15 to 30 percent of the time. Perhaps in, in metastatic melanoma, they may work a little bit um, more successfully, maybe 50 to 60 percent of the time if you combine two drugs. And that's what Jimmy Carter got for his metastatic melanoma in the brain uh, as treatment. And he's now in remission. But because they only work in 15 to 30 percent of the time, there's been a lot of active work, including at UNC, where we have seven or eight open trials and a successfully large genomics effort to try to figure out why some patients respond, the majority of patients don't, and how to increase the responders and how to figure out how to make this therapy more effective in the non-responders. There are side effects of checkpoint inhibitors. There are many of them. Can you list a few of those for us, please? Yeah, so they are typical side effects that you would see for other autoimmune-type diseases. So again, we're kind of reinvigorating your immune cells to recognize your tumor, but they also are reinvigorated to recognize some part of you. The most common is uh, thyroid dysfunction, which leads to low thyroid function or hypothyroidism. That happens in about maybe one in five patients. But you also can see lung inflammation, immune-mediated, um, kidney problems that are immune-mediated, colitis or diarrhea that's immune-mediated and uh, liver dysfunction that's immune-mediated. And all of those are seen in uh, perhaps 5 to 20 percent of individuals getting this treatment. There's a consequence of depressing one's immune system and there's a consequence of revving up one's immune system. Correct. Talk to us for a minute about stem cell transplants. We, you alluded to that uh, earlier on. So. So we always think it's interesting because immunotherapy is not a very novel concept. The, the notion of immunotherapy goes back about 100 years to a fellow named William Coley who was at the uh, surgical hospital in New York that became Sloan Kettering and was giving bacterial uh, products to patients with sarcomas and had spectacular success. The most recent form of immunotherapy that is used worldwide is stem cell transplant. So stem cell transplant is basically, in most instances, when we talk about the immune therapy version, is taking somebody else's bone marrow or stem cells from the bloodstream and giving them to you after you've been treated to make sure that you accept those cells and that your cancer's um, no longer present. 
And those immune cells that you get from the donor have the ability to go into your body and recognize your tumor as foreign and kill them. And we utilize that pretty regularly as a way to try to make sure that the malignancy, mostly leukemia lymphoma, doesn't come back. The huge difference between a stem cell transplant is that the stem cells are coming from another person, a donor. In the the adoptive immunotherapy protocol that you have, it's the patient's own cells that are being reinfused. So that's right. So the problem with stem cell transplant is not only can the donor cells recognize your tumor cells as foreign, but they could recognize you as foreign. And that's a process called graft-versus-host disease and can be quite debilitating to patients. And it's been very difficult over the 40 years that we've done transplants to try to figure out a way to optimize their ability to kill tumor without hurting yourself. If you think about it, you can rejuvenate an immune response by using stem cells. You can rejuvenate an immune response by adoptive immunotherapy, putting back the patient's own cells that have been uh, enhanced to kill a specific target, and then a checkpoint inhibitor that also revs up an immune response. Correct. And as you said, in most instances where we're much more enthusiastic nowadays is using your own system, which would be the adoptive cell therapy or checkpoint inhibitor therapy, which gets around the problems of allogeneic responses that transplant is associated with. One of the important messages for our listeners then is that the really, really innovative work that you're doing that are saving lives emanates from uh, money that is provided by the state of North Carolina to the uh, cancer center, the what is called the uh, UCRF. Can you tell us a little bit uh, more about that program? Sure. Um, that's a great question, Ron. So UCRF stands for the University Cancer Research Fund, which was started about a decade ago as a substantial investment by the state of North Carolina in cancer care for North Carolinians. And so without those funds, some 45 to $48 million that come to our cancer center, we couldn't have recruited the individuals that lead the effort to develop these therapies. We couldn't have developed the uh, infrastructure nor the manufacturing facility where we make these products. And we couldn't have recruited the staff to follow the patients uh, bring the patients here from different parts of the state. And so that's actually been probably the most critical part for us to be able to do this is the unbelievable support that we get from the state of North Carolina to allow us to treat North Carolinians. It's a treasured resource. Correct. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Sirodi, for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks so much to our listeners for tuning in. You can subscribe to The Chairs Corner on iTunes, SoundCloud, or like us on Facebook. Thanks so much for listening.